I'm Heidi Zuckerman. I'm the Nancy and Bob Magoon CEO and director here at the Aspen Art Museum. And thank you for joining us tonight for a special conversation with Hans Ulrich Ulbrist. It's presented as part of the Questrom Lecture Series. And we have uh, sign language interpretation being provided by the Aspen Camp for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing. So the Aspen Art Museum recently published the book Conversations with Artists. And we wanted to have it up here uh, uh, with us. And um, it features more than 30 conversations with prominent contemporary artists um, that I had the opportunity to host personal and I think illuminating conversations with um, to complement this project and our outstanding lineup of summer artist talks. We wanted to invite a colleague uh, who has tremendous experience in the practice of interviews and conversations with artists. And I could think of few as seasoned as Hans Ulrich. And I'm thrilled that he is joining us here this evening. So as an introduction to Hans Ulrich, he's a curator and a writer who has organized more than 300 exhibitions during his career. He has served as the artistic director of the Serpentine Galleries in London since 2006. Prior to this, he was the curator of the Musée d'Art Moderne de Ville de Paris. And he is also contributing editor for several journals and magazines and publications, A Brief History of Curating, Ways of Curating, Lives of Artists, Lives of Architects, and others that he will share with us tonight. His ongoing interview project has gathered over 2,000 hours of recordings with cultural figures. For our program, we will begin with a presentation by Hans Ulrich on his practice that he's prepared, and then we'll explore some questions about interviews and how they reveal truth and reflect on our journey of spending time with artists, and then we will open it up to questions. So without further ado, thank you. Thank you very much, Heidi, and good evening, uh, everyone. I just wanted to basically uh, begin maybe by saying that, uh, you know, for me, the idea of uh, conversations, I was always, you know, thinking maybe we should call it conversations because the idea of the interview is kind of sometimes a unilateral kind of process. And I think, in a way, you know, often it is really about an exchange. It's about a back and forth. And um, uh, for me, the beginning of it all was really when as a teenager I found this book by Giorgio Vasari, which is a book Vasari, the artist and scholar and historian, wrote in the 16th century. It's called Lives of the Artists and Lives of the Architects, and it's basically a book where he talks about his contemporaries, and it's you know this idea that maybe some of his contemporaries uh, he felt would be historic figures. So he felt you know he should write down their lives and works and. Somehow for me as a teenager, when I was like 13, 14, reading this book, it was incredibly important because the beginning of me being interested in art, but it was also a very important epiphany to kind of realize, you know, that that's true for every epoch. You know, some of the contemporaries we live today with are going to be historic figures and we definitely should, you know, write their lives. And I think that's somehow the beginning. It was the first impulse for me to maybe record also the voices of... Uh, of artists. I mean, there were some other books I was inspired by André Philippien, you know, who was the court architect. Um, and he, in dialogue with Nicolas Poussin, wrote this extraordinary, you know, entretien. He wrote uh, this great entretien uh, in dialogue with Nicolas Poussin. Uh, and then, of course, in our time, you know, we have David Sylvester's conversation with uh, Francis Bacon. We have Brassai's conversations with Picasso. So there are lots of examples, in a way, of such artists' uh, interviews. I also realized uh, that actually Rauschenberg, Robert Rauschenberg in 55, did a great work called Interview. It's an, an amazing combine. Uh, and it's kind of like an open combine of Rauschenberg where you really see into his studio. And that's, of course, you know, as a curator, uh, and I suppose that's true for Heidi and for me, you know, as curators, we foremost and as museums directors have these conversations in artist studios. They're very often studio conversations and these studio conversations lead then to projects and then of course, sometimes, you know, these conversations happen in public, they happen on stage, but that's a rare occasion. Mostly they are, you know, and that's why it's interesting that Rauschenberg did this depiction in 55 
of this somehow, you know, studio, uh, studio interview. I would also say that in a way, at a certain moment for me, it became the idea of an encyclopedia, you know, it became um, a kind of an archive, and I actually became aware of that when I went to Chicago. Chicago was very important for me, for the interview project, because uh, our road somehow led to Chicago, because I, uh, in a way, um, met Stats Turkel there. And um, he was very old. He was uh, basically uh, having this archive of 10,000 hours of conversations. And he, of course, was an oral historian par excellence. And he wrote you know, the history of work. He, he interviewed all the great jazz musicians, uh, and he gave me many tips. I really, you know, he became my teacher in how to conduct an interview. And he also said, basically, you know, just don't stop until you have 10,000 hours. So I still have, you know, a long way to go. And then you, I'll tell you later, there is another thing in terms of Chicago, of course, which is that my own archive partially is in Chicago because of Joseph Grigley, the artist who is here tonight, who has ever since the beginning of the 90s been archiving my curatorial practice and my interview practice. Uh, so in a way, it's wonderful that this archive is now in the, in the city of, uh, of, of Staatsterkel. I start to show you a few slides tonight about some aspects of um, the interview or conversation project. Um, for me, at a certain moment, you know, it became interesting because two is a company, three is a crowd. And then it was interesting to think, how could we have conversations you know, with several people? How could we do group conversations? Uh, and that's really what led to these interview marathons, which we started. I joined the Serpentine in 2006, and we built these um, pavilions at the Serpentine, where every summer we invite an architect to basically um, build a pavilion on the lawn of the Serpentine. Um, in 2006, the first year I joined, it was actually Rem Kohlhaas with Cecil Balmond, and so Rem and I decided to do an interview marathon, uh, 24 hours non-stop, uh, interviewing 72 people from London. Um, because we thought it would be great, you know, how could one make a portrait of a city uh, through artists, architects, scientists. So here you see the 72nd interview. After 24 hours, we met the legendary Doris Lessing, the late Doris Lessing, the Nobel Prize winning you know, writer and uh, novelist. Uh, and she talked about extinction. She talked about you know, ecology and how important it is today in the world also of exhibitions that we address the theme you know, of, uh, of extinction, of ecology. So of course, you know, these conversations are very often the point of departure for exhibitions. They are, I'm sure that's also the, the case. We'll discuss that later for Heidi's book, because many of these conversations have to do with shows, which happened here in Aspen, with artists doing exhibitions. So in a way, they're not conversations you know, for conversation's sake. I always say they're kind of production of reality conversations. They're conversations which you know, produce something. And this conversation with Doris Lessing produced a whole string of programs at the Serpentine, uh, where over the last you know, 10 years, we've been focusing on ecology uh, you know, within, within the institution. Um, here you have, uh, of course, the conversation with Ram and also Zaha Hadid, the late Zaha Hadid. Zaha Hadid was very, very at the core, we can say, of uh, the Serpentine. Um, she started our you know, pavilion scheme with Julia Payton Jones in 2000. Uh, Zaha Hadid also built our permanent building, um, the, basically second building, which is her only building in central London. Uh, and she basically uh, was also a trustee for more than 20 years of the Serpentine Gallery. So I would like to dedicate tonight's you know, presentation to the memory of this great architect and, uh, and friend. Um, of course, the, the conversations, you know, which are such multitudes, such marathons, are the, you know, they are the exception. Most conversations of my so far 3,000 hours are, of course, individual conversations with artists. And I thought tonight to give you one example, you know, because I think it would be nice to look at one of these interviews, which is actually the interview with Sandra Perry, which we've been doing uh, as part of an exhibition. 
uh, Sandra uh, actually constructs these multifaceted narratives that explore the imagining or imaging of blackness through our history. She often takes her own life as a point of departure and create, you know, create works which revolves around the black American experience and ways in which actually technologies and identities are entangled. All these works are open source, so it's very important that they are there for everyone. We can download them, uh, and you will see now an extract, if we can have that short film, of the conversation uh, with Sandra Perry. Sandra said also, I want people to feel like they have space and agency when I create a work. She creates you know, 3D avatars of the artists questioning the kind of production modalities of, of our time. And we should now have the interview. But you have the text. The exhibition, by the way, at the Serpentine of Sandra Perry uh, just ended in London and the tour to Miami, uh, where it's now on display at the ICA. It's a collaboration with Alex Gartenfeld there, which just opened last week. So for those of you be in Miami in the next couple of weeks or months, you can see this uh, exhibition. And so we can say, you know, that the idea of, um, you know, working with emerging artists, uh, you know, to basically, uh, of course, record. Often also a first longer interview with an artist has always been part of the practice. And, um, and he's very much at the core, um, you know, at the core of, of this archive. But it's basically uh, the flip side, of course, to that is what I call the protest against forgetting. So. Um, when I was a teenager, I started you know, to uh, visit a lot of artists and studio visits. That's how I became a curator. So I can say you know, it was always conversations um, which were at the car. And I went to Cologne to see Rosemary Trockel, the German artist, um, uh, who was then you know, in her 30s. And she basically said, you know, this is a great thing that I would visit all these young artists and I would make a cartography of emerging practices and you know, give them a voice. Um, but she said she thinks it's very important to not forget that there are many pioneering artists in the world who are forgotten. And uh, she was saying that particularly so many women artists, you know, had not received the attention they should. Uh, and it was just a moment, you know, it was in the 80s when I was a teenager, around 85, 86. It was just a moment when Louis Bourgeois became famous. And uh, Rosemary said there are many more artists, you know, like Louis Bourgeois, extraordinary visionary artists whose work, um, you know, deserves more attention. And she said she always wanted to go and visit and interview all these artists, but she didn't have the time. So she thought it would be a nice project for me to do it. And I've done it ever since. So basically, I would always arrive in a city and I would basically say, who is the Louis Bourgeois? You know, in town, is there a, an artist, you know, a pioneering artist whom I should visit, whose voice should be heard more? Uh, and I've got probably about 700 interviews in my archive of such pioneering artists. And I wanted to show you tonight the most recent interview in this series. Uh, so together with Bettina Korek, we actually were asking this question to many artists and practitioners in LA. And all roads led to Lucita Hurtado. Lucita Hurtado is now in her late 90s. Um, she basically was part of the surrealist you know, movement, was married to Wolfgang Palen, you know, friends with Max Ernst and Leonora Carrington, 
And uh, you see here the studio visit. She has created extraordinary works you know, for, um, for more than seven decades, um, from her surrealist work to her extraordinary textile work. She has been creating her own clothes, which is almost like a piece. You know, she's designed these amazing clothes over seven decades, has uh, created uh, you know, hundreds of paintings, and they were basically found more or less you know, lost in the estate of her late husband, Lee Mullican, uh, and luckily now recovered and you know, start to be exhibited. So we did this long interview in her studio, followed them by a public conversation uh, where hundreds of people came you know, in LA to listen to her. And we are now working on a thousand pages book to really celebrate you know, the practice of the seven decade of forgotten practice. So here, you know, in terms of production of reality, the interview leads to a public conversation, leads to a book, will ultimately lead to an exhibition, you know. So it's basically these different steps. Um, and uh, here we have Lucita. Lucita is also the mother of Matt Malikan. Many of you might know Matt Malikan, the artist. Uh, and he's still, you know, and he's still basically participating in demonstrations. Uh, the other day she went on a demonstration for ecological causes, is also an activist, a truly extraordinary artist, and is at the moment part of this group show in New York of new paintings, which I just saw yesterday, this group show at Green Naftali and uh, Matthew Marx of a lot of painters. Another example, of course, is, you know, is not only a mapping of artists, but it's also a mapping of a city. You know, I mentioned the marathon. Um, at a certain moment, I started to visit uh, Mexico City uh, throughout the 90s. We did a show there with Pedro Reyes at the Barragan House. I curated several shows of Mexican art in you know, Paris and then at the southern time. Uh, at the moment, we have a pavilion in London of a young Mexican architect, Frida Escobedo. Um, and I realized that there was this amazing generation of pioneers in the 60s in Mexico. Uh, Jodorowsky, Leonora Carrington, of course, the surrealist, a friend of Luchita Hurtado. So together with Moises Cosio and his foundation and For Your Art, uh, we decided uh, to do this book which was basically edited by Karamata, which mapped the amazing generation of artists and you know, theoreticians and practitioners working in the 60s. So you, know, you have Alejandro Khodorovsky, uh, the great filmmaker. You have Elena, Elena Poniatowska, Margot Glantz, who are the great you know, feminist historian. You had Eduardo Terrazas, you know, the, 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 the painter and uh, geometric artist. You have Carlos Fuentes, uh, the novelist, you have Teodoro Gonzalez Leon, who is the architect. You have Santiago Genoves, who is the anthropologist. You have Esquivel, uh, who is the composer. You have Graciela Irtutide, she is the amazing photographer. All of these artists, you know, now in their 80s. And so it became a kind of a portrait of a generation in Mexico, and in a way, another protest you know, against forgetting. And I think what is important is that we live in an age of more and more information, uh, but that maybe you know, amnesia is somewhere at the core of this age of information, and that that's why we need to protest against forgetting. And interviews, conversations, the recording of a novel history of art and the, and the subsequent publishing of it is, in my view, you know, a form of protesting against forgetting. Here, the surrealist Leonora Carrington. And then, of course, you know, there are the more complicated interviews, where basically the artists are not so comfortable you know, with the format. Um, so, for example, for many years, I tried to convince the artist Hans-Peter Feldman um, to do an interview. Um, but he said he just couldn't do it because he hated you know, his words to be transcribed. So in many conversations, <clears throat> we figured out a format we made him comfortable. Uh, and that actually was that I would ask him a question and he would answer with an image. So you know, what role does chance play? What's your motto? And I would always, every week, send him a question by email and he would send me back, you know, he would send me back uh, an image. And then we made a book. 
particularly interesting here on the right-hand side when I asked him about this happiness, right? So he found the image for happiness. Or the question of the museum, or the question of the epiphany. And of course, you know, you have often this idea that artists, you know, are not comfortable with, you know, the format of the, of the interview, or also that things can go wrong. It's interesting when, in conversations, things go wrong. So, for example, many years ago, I interviewed the philosopher Gadamer in Germany. He was 100 years old, and he fell asleep during the interview. So, it was really difficult, you know, because I was alone with this 100-year-old philosopher, and I didn't really dare to wake him up. So then, luckily, the telephone rang, and he answered, and he said, Karamer, I'm in an interview. I need to ring you back. <laughs> and he looked at my camera, and, and he said, you know, you will have the greatest difficulty to transcribe my silence. Um, <laughs> the other interesting situation is when I went to interview the uh, actress Jeanne Moreau, who was always my favorite actress, um, and we recorded this long interview with her, and she had made hair and makeup, you know, and she was completely convinced that I would come with a photographer. Uh, but of course, you know, it was an interview for a book. So at the end, she looked at me and she says, you know, where is the photographer? So then I thought, I, you know, I have two possibilities. Either I can disappoint her and I can say there is no photographer, or I can be positive and I can say, you know, I always do both. I do the interview and I do the photography. So I took out my iPhone and, um, and she kind of started to look at my iPhone and then she said, you know, that is not the way one makes a portrait. Because obviously as a, you know, famous actress, she had been photographed a thousand times. So she started to direct the shoot, you know, higher, higher, left, left. And then, you know, she said, basically, now that you know how to make a portrait, you can make photos of all your friends. So ever since, you know, I do portraits, you know, of all, of all my friends. So that was, that, was Jean, that was Jean Moreau. And then, of course, there are the different places where you do a recording. You know, sometimes it happens in a cafe. Sometimes it happens in an airplane. For example, a few years ago, I did an interview with Pierre Week between Paris and Los Angeles on Air France. And the rule of the game was that we couldn't stop. So we would basically, none of the two of us could fall asleep, and we would have a nine-hour recording. And whenever the steward or the stewardess arrived, we would ask them to ask Pierre a question. So you know that produced the book in itself. And then, of course, you know there are the conversations which lead us into other fields. So a couple of years ago, Everybody started to, you know, talk about blockchain and cryptocurrency, and I didn't really understand what it was. So I decided I needed to learn. And so for me, it's also this idea of permanently going into other fields and learning. And so I became an expert, you know, on the theme of blockchain and cryptocurrency over the last, you know, two years by just going to talk to many people in the field. So one example here is Vitalik Buterin. Vitalik Buterin is basically the, you know, the inventor of uh, Ethereum, one of the most important cryptocurrencies. And it's, of course, a moment where the boundaries of technology are intertwined you know, with the foundations of society, of culture, of identity. So it seemed interesting at a moment when many artists also were interested in that theme, you know, to find out from Vitalik what's the meaning of cryptocurrency, and not only what does it mean for economy, but what does it mean for society, what does it mean for art, what does it mean for museums, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So here you have this conversation, you know, with Vitalik. And so many of these conversations basically, you know, um, lead into other fields, lead into science, leading to technologies. Uh, I think when we, you know, if we want to understand the forces which are effective in visual arts, you know, we need to understand what's happening in all these other fields which surround us. And then, of course, last but not least, there is, um, you know, the project 
I'm doing for Instagram, which is deeply connected to uh, my conversations. It's almost like maybe my ultimate exhibition of conversation. It's a curatorial program, or curatorial project, and I never knew what to do with social media, because I sort of um, uh, had the app on my phone, and the artist Ryan Tricartin had downloaded it for me, and he posted it to all his followers, he has many, and you know, he said, Hans Ulrich has joined Instagram. Um, and, and I just didn't know what to do with it. But there was a lot of peer pressure. Um, and so then I kind of started to think it needed to be something which, has to, which is a project in itself. You know? So it wouldn't sort of just reflect what I see, but it would actually produce reality, would you know, produce something meaningful. Um, and I realized that more and more you know, things through technology also disappear. You know, it leads us back to this question of extinction, you know, and I think it's our role also in the field of art, in the field of museums, to save things, you know, to basically protest against the disappearance of things and languages disappear. And of course, one of the most central things which disappear is handwriting. Um, I mean, art history is very much, you know, driven by handwritten letters with artists. I mean, so many letters, you know, have, been, have played a role for art historians, for museums. And we just no longer have this idea of, of handwritten letters and people you know, no longer handwrite. And so Umberto Eco told me that maybe it would be my role to do an exhibition of something you know, which could protest against the disappearance of handwriting. So I suddenly realized I have conversations every day with artists, uh, with scientists, with architects. So I could just ask them to doodle or handwrite something you know, and then post it on my Instagram. So I'm going to show you a few examples. So that was when we were doing the conversation with Alex Israel and Brett Easton Ellis. They started to work on their collaboration between art and literature. And we were sitting you know, in a cafe. And uh, they did this post-it. And then a few weeks later, Alex Israel's second post-it uh, for, <laughs> for, my, for my Instagram. I can't really see it. I think this is Wade Guyton. I thought it's nice that we have Wade Guyton here and Peter Fishley, because they've, of course, done here this unforgettable exhibition at the Aspen Museum, which was their first collaboration, um, where basically they showed, um, they, they showed you know, of course, their individual work, but they also did a collaboration when Heidi uh, invited them. And Peter, of course, is always interested in changing the rules of the game. So he didn't want to do handwriting. He wanted me to post an SMS. And this SMS is particularly fitting here. It's actually the first time I do a, a lecture in, the, in front of a mountain. Um, and, uh, and I think it's a really magical situation here. It's a magical place. You know, it's a, it couldn't be a more magical place to do, to do a talk. And of course, Peter Fishley, who is both you know, a leading artist and a leading alpinist, uh, so it could, it's amazing that Heidi brought him here to do this exhibition. Uh, here we have my friend Leon Golub with one of my favorite quotes ever, the late artist Leon Golub. It's one of you know, the sentences I often think when I wake up in the morning and I think when I, you know, why we work and why it's important to work for art and to work for artists. Then we have Etel Adnan, the great artist and poet who says, terror is our collective failure. Life is nature's triumph. Again, a very fitting quote, in a way, for this context here. Arthur Jaffa, who has done a whole series of, uh, of post-its for, for my Instagram. And then Jane Goodall. And this is a post-it by, by, by Olafur Eliasson. And he really thinks this is also an instruction piece. So he really thinks it's important that we all smile. So let's smile. <laughs> and then Ian Chang. And I think we all have problems with email. There are too many. And they always arrive with urgent. And we have many unanswered emails in our inbox. So we long for a new medium. So he thinks, you know, email is a defunct medium. And 
I would like to um, mention here Joseph Grigley as a very big influence on, on my Instagram, because if I think about handwriting and you know, the, the, the idea of using handwriting, uh, I met Joseph for the first time at the beginning of the 90s, and of course, handwriting has played such a central role in his work when he uses these handwritten doodles and these handwritten notes and makes these amazing compositions out of them. And uh, so Joseph has been contributing again a whole series of Instagrams. So what is of course nice, you know, because you've seen some of uh, Alex's now, some of uh, Joseph's, some of Arthur Jaffa's. Um, you know, it's almost like a group show, but then when artists too many, you know, they have a solo show on my, on my Instagram. Andri Sala, for example, posts a clock every week. Here, Joseph's Trump uh, Instagram. And that's an oxymoron. Make haste slowly. Pao Chan. Anyway, you can see all of those also, of course, on Instagram. And here the motto from Zaha Hadid. Uh, she wrote this a few weeks before her passing. Uh, and we think about it at the Serpentine every day. Um, it's our motto that there should be no end you know, to experimentation, because we think that that's at the core of what we do with art, of what we do with architecture, of what we do with public programming. You know, and besides the idea of um, you know, fighting extinction, we think, of course, also the idea of new experiments in art and technology is very important. Jana Peel, our CEO, and I have just appointed a chief technology officer, Ben Vickers, who is an artist. So we love this idea that we have an artist as our chief technology officer, you know, because we think that every institution, every museum, every corporation, every government should have an artist in residence. It's an idea that English artist John Latham had with Barbara Stevini, and I think we need this for the 21st century. I think the world would be a better place if every ministry, every corporation, every company, every school, every museum, you know, would have an artist in residency. So we have Ben Vickers, our chief technology officer, you know, as an artist in residency, and Jana Peel and I and uh, our teams, you know, work on many such new experiments in art and technology. So we bring artists and engineers together. We work with artificial intelligence. We work with augmented reality. Um, and that's very much, you know, in a way at the center of what we do. Last but not least, you know, at a certain moment, the, um, at a certain moment, the post-it thing became a bit repetitive because uh, some of my friends said, you need a new idea, you know. I said, no, no, we still need to protest against this piece of handwriting, but I thought it would be nice to have a second Instagram within the Instagram, so we reactivated the exquisite corpse. So the surrealist had this beautiful game that you fold a piece of paper, and then somebody writes a sentence, somebody writes the second part, the third part, and you basically get a poem, you know, by chance. Or you can also do it with the head, the body, you know, you can do a figure. And so we started to do exquisite carbs as a kind of a second project on Instagram. And all of these, you know, come out of conversations. We would be in an interview, in a cafe, in a studio. So we can say that my Instagram is almost in that sense. I mean, Joseph would say it's a, you know, it's a conversation piece. Here, for example, the prime minister of Albania, Edi Rama, and Rick Ritiravanija, thinking about politics in 2018. Or here, you know, several artists collaborating on an exquisite corpse. Thank you all very much. All right, great. So, a couple questions from me. So, I guess the first one is, um, do you have any rituals that you associate with these interviews or conversations? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is that it has to do with the fact of total delinking, you know? It's, it's one of these moments where we switch off our machines, where we don't think of anything else. It's a moment of, you know, it's a moment of total concentration. Mm -hmm. I think then there is also a ritual of, you know, recording. Because, of course, there is always the paranoia of losing the recording. 
So I always have three machines. Because if you have one, the chance is very likely that you're going to lose it. If you have two, one might run out of battery, and then you get nervous and always stare at the one which is still working. So it's only when you have three that you don't have to bother. So that's another ritual. <laughs> so what have you learned about yourself through all these conversations? Now, I suppose that I've, you know, I've learned everything in a way through conversations, because I think the, the idea of, uh, of curating is, of, you know, of running an art institution, I think that we should never think about, you know, in the first place what we believe, you know, an exhibition or an institution should be. But I think that we need to find out from artists, you know, what is urgent, what is necessary. But, you know, and I think that idea that curating museums follow art, follow artists, has always been very much at the car, you know, and also, I mean, what I've learned is really, I would say, is, is that the impossible is possible, you know? Because I think at the very beginning, artists were always telling me that they have these projects which they would like to do and which they cannot do. And I kind of always thought, wow, you know, that's very complicated. But over the years, I've kind of realized that we actually can make them happen, you know? So I've got basically, my interview archive is an archive of many, many unrealized artist projects and, um, and in a way uh, trying to build them is kind of, you know, and I think what I've learned is also patience, it's to listen. I mean, at the beginning I was always very, you know, impatient of asking the next question and I think in a way, I think, you know, the 20th century was a century of making manifestos, no? And there were very often very loud manifestos. Uh, and I think the 21st century has to do more with listening, listening to other people, listening to the earth, listening to other planets, listening to other beings, to, to listen in a way. Do you think there are things that can't be asked? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, a really interesting question. I always try to avoid, uh, you know, I, I really never really ask questions about, you know, personal, or private lives, because I feel in a way what Godard said is, is very true, you know, when he said that when he basically leaves the house, you know, everybody knows his face and everybody knows his life, but nobody really knows his work. So I kind of early on thought, you know, this should really be about the work mm. more than about, you know, the, you know, maybe more than about people's life or, or all of that. And then, of course, very often, you know, you cannot separate it because very often there is a blur of art and life, but I would never start with that. It always kind of starts with the practice, starts with the work and all of that, yeah. Otherwise, I don't think that there is, I think the idea of asking unexpected questions or also asking questions which no one has ever asked before is kind of, you know, what prompts maybe the most interesting thing. So is there a question that you like to be asked? Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose, uh, the question of uh, what, what is my own unrealized project is a question I'm now relatively frequently asked because, uh, because I always ask this question and then people ask me the question. And so, uh, you know, I have a whole list of my own unrealized project. That, that's kind of a fun question. Mm -hmm. Is there a question that you always go to yeah, there is a whole questionnaire. I mean, there is, I, I basically would always ask artists about their unrealized question, you know, because I think it's really interesting that we can find out what, uh, I think it's really interesting that we, we can find out what artists would like to do and what with, within the parameters of our current existing society, you know, they, they cannot do. So I think we can learn from that maybe how we can adapt institutions to make these unrealized dreams happen. Uh, I would always ask artists also about what is their advice to a young artist. So I, I'm very interested in this idea of, you know, the next generation, uh, generosity, you know, how, what, what do artists want to tell to the future? I mean, Rainer Maria Rilke wrote this lovely little book, which is uh, advice to a young poet, which I, I recommend you all to read and reread and reread. It's one of the most magical books, you know. And I think it's kind of interesting that we ask artists to what would they tell younger artists as a kind of an advice. I often also ask artists about, you know, projects which failed. I think it's interesting, you know, to talk about that. 
And of course, I, I very often ask artists to, you know, if there is someone they wanted to work with, if there is somebody in, in music, or if there is somebody in literature, or if there's another artist, or if there's another architect, because I see my work often as making junctions, you know, as building bridges. So when an artist then would say, you know, I really want to meet this composer, or I really want to meet, you know, so Gerhard Richter told me a few years ago that he was really into Steve Reich, and that he had only met Steve Reich, you know, sporadically. So we make a project now where Steve Reich is composing music for Gerhard Richter. It will be the inaugural show we're doing with Alex Putz for our project in New York, The Shed, um, which is a new institution. It's going to open next year. And so we curate this project where Steve Reich is making music for Gerhard Richter about seriality, and Gerhard Richter is making new work you know, about, uh, I mean, for Steve Reich, really, about seriality with patterns, uh, you know, a whole new installation, a totally new body of work. And then, you know, the music of Steve Reich will not, because of course we are making exhibitions, we're exhibition makers, so an exhibition isn't just from six to seven, so it cannot just be a Steve Reich concert. So the music of Steve Reich will be there from 10 in the morning to 6 at night. So we will have, you know, shifts of orchestras playing the music all day long. And then you'll have this experience that you can just come at any moment during the day and experience these two visionary arts together. So this would never have happened if I wouldn't have asked, you know, Gerhard and, and Alex wouldn't have asked Steve with whom they always wanted to collaborate. So that's a particularly, you know, fruitful uh, question. And many of these questions are in this book with Feldman, you know, because we basically have this questionnaire. I always also ask artists about their beginnings. Um, I want to know, you know, how it all began, how they, became, how they came to art. I want to know what's the first museum they visited. I think it's unbelievably interesting, you know, what's the first moment when an artist has this, you know, kind of epiphany. I also always want to know, in a way, who are the artists, uh, the peers artists are working with, uh, who are younger generation of artists they are interested in. Because, you know, very often artists know who are the great generations, who are the great artists of the future, you know? So I very often find out about younger artists, emerging artists, mm -hmm. from artists, you know, telling me. So that's another very, you know, recurrent question. Another recurrent question, of course, is the Dan Graham question, because Dan Graham always says that we can only understand an artist if we can also know what music he or she is listening to. What are your recurrent questions, Heidi? I wanted to ask you. Well, it's so interesting, because I thought you were going to say the Dan Graham question. <laughs> the Dan Graham question for me is, what is your sign? Right? Because that's the first thing that Dan Graham always wants to know is, you know, what your astrological sign is. And then he tells you everyone else who is that same sign. Um, and that's like the point of entry. Uh, so you've had some of my recurring questions already. Um, I'm really interested in ritual. So I often ask people, you know, what's the one thing they do every day that they most look forward to? And what's the one thing they do every day that they most dread? Um, I often ask uh, what you're most proud of, um, what you would have done differently. And uh, are there any, any questions you wouldn't ask to come back to that question? It's, it's interesting because I do think that the conversations are about the work, but I I think that the conversations that I'm most interested in are actually more universal um, than, than art, which is, you know, kind of a big statement because, of course, you know, that's the thing that I am the most committed to in my life. Uh, but I think sometimes to understand why artists do what they do and what I'm most interested in is the intention. It has to be, it has to be about more than the art. So, I don't have any questions that are off limits, um, but what I do do is try and make myself as available and as vulnerable to um, participating in the conversations. And so um, I would never ask a question that I wouldn't answer myself. And of course the question is also, 
you know, the impossible interviews or conversations. I also think it's kind of interesting that, you know, you have artists who, who refuse this format of the conversation or the interview categorically. So, for example, I was good friends with On Kavara, you know, and we played chess or we'd hang out and we do shows together. I once exhibited his drawings in a hotel room. Uh, very, you know, wonderful projects. But he just would not want, you know, his voice to be recorded. Uh, and the same thing is true uh, for Stanley Brown. Uh, mm -hmm. Stanley Brown just, you know, would not. I mean, I have a very long interview with Stanley Brown why he doesn't want to give interviews. So that's kind of quite meta in a way. So you have artists where that just isn't, you know, isn't somehow part of the practice, but it's pretty rare, right? It's pretty rare. You know, I have an early story where, um, just like Rosemary Trockel suggested that to you, um, I don't actually remember if it was, I think it was Byron Kim, but it may have been Paul Bloodgood, but early on suggested to me that there was this dearth of, of recording artists' conversations and suggested that's what I should do. And so I have a bunch of early tapes also of these early conversations. And one of the, one of the ones I, I did was with Doug Aiken, who at the time I spent pretty much every day with. And we talked about everything. And then, you know, I turned on the recording and I asked him the first question. And I mean, silence, like not a word. <laughs> and, um, and then he said, you know what? I, I can't really do this, um, but I have an idea. You. I'll ask you questions as you, and then you answer them as me, because you know me as well as you know I know myself. So, so that was a very early and interesting conversation. Um, and then I have one where, uh, which I think is in this book with Sergey Jensen, where Sergey never wanted to be recorded, never wanted his voice or his his image anywhere, and then he decided for one year to. Um, to act like an artist and do the job of an artist. So that one year, he said he would do interviews, he would talk to the press, he would do all of these things that you know artists normally do, but he would never um, usually do. So we have this great conversation with that too. And I wanted to also bring up this idea, you know, of repeat conversations because I think, you know, for me, you know, starting to kind of read. Um, for those of you who haven't read it, it's very recommendable to read. Pierre Caban's conversation with Marcel Duchamp, right? Because so Pierre Caban would talk to Marcel Duchamp again and again and again and again and again. And I think in a way, you know, over the years, that of course happens also with us, you know, because one works with artists again and again and has conversations again. I mean, I would say, you know, with some of the artists, I might have recorded 50, you know, conversations. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you, you come to points where things are said which just otherwise could never be said. Because I think, you know, it leads also to this idea that certain things are just too personal to be spoken about, or they're too intimate to be spoken about, or they're also, in a way, too complex to be spoken about. I mean, very often, artists just can't explain exactly how the work happens. Because, you know, as Whistler said, famously, art happens. You, you often can't really explain it. And it's particularly interesting to read, you know, David Sylvester's conversations with Francis Bacon, because this unspeakable or this you know, very difficult way of actually expressing things, they, they, they get closer and closer to it with each conversation. It's almost like they need it to talk again and again and again. And, you know, and then, of course, all of a sudden, you have these very surprising things. So for example, I would speak you know, for 20 years to Gerhard Richter, or for 10 years to Ellsworth Kelly very regularly. And then at a certain moment, both of these artists, almost like at the same time, started to reveal that they're really, really very, very close to architecture and that they have this great interest in architecture. So then I you know, did basically long conversations with both of them about them as an architect, you know, about Ellsworth's interest in, in architecture, in Niemeyer, about Ellsworth's desire to do a chapel, to do actually buildings, about Gerhard Richter's wish to do these buildings for his works about, you know, uh, and I think it's very, you know, fascinating in a way that it took a long time
to get there. You know, it's sort of it's not something which goes from one day uh, from one day to the next. Or Rosemary Trockel, for example. You know, she and I have been recording conversations now for 20 years. Very often, she only agreed to do them when she had insomnia moments. So we could only record them in the middle of the night, in periods, in phases when she had insomnia. And you know, and she still hasn't agreed for these conversations to be published. So, and I'm not in a hurry, you know. Uh, I give the time she wants this to take. And it's been 20 years now. Maybe after 30 years, we're going to do a book. Maybe it's going to take another 20 years. So I think also this idea of not being in a rush, of slowness, no, all of these things. Yeah. So uh, last week, I think I was in a conversation with Justice Beyer from our Supreme Court. And he said, uh, not everything that's thought needs to be said. Not everything that's said needs to be written. And not everything that's written needs to be published. And so I think that's uh, you know, wise, wise words. Um, I'd like to open it up to some questions. I have, I have two questions. All right, Stefan. The, que the first question is, uh, was this recorded? And yes, I think it's probably recorded three it's times. Right. Question number two. We had a conversation about, uh, you know, the survivors in every 50 years. Uh, say you've, uh, you've uh, interviewed maybe 700 artists. In your view, how many of those 700 will end up at the quarterfinals? No, I don't think that, you know, I've, 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 I've interviewed or had conversations with, with 700 artists because it's basically practitioners from all disciplines. You know, it's scientists, it's musicians, composers, architects, you know, novelists, poets, etc. And I think the thing we also shouldn't forget is that it's so many, you know, different generations because in a way, um, I think we can almost in a life, you know, cover two centuries, I mean almost, because, and I think that's what is so fascinating. So when I was 20, you know, I went to talk to artists who are 80, 90 years old. Mm. And, uh, you know, by the time, you know, uh, I'm gonna be 80 or 90, you know, um, I might then talk to artists who are 20 or 30 then, mm. and by the time they are 80 or 90, you know, so you can cover in a lifetime, in a way, almost two centuries. Um, so I think in that sense, you know, it is, it has to be a quite kind of encyclopedic, a quite encyclopedic endeavor. But I think it is important that, that we, you know, to, to sort of look at all these other fields, because I don't think that we should isolate the field, you know, that we should isolate the field of art or the field of architecture from other fields. Because I think, I mean, for example, another great example was when I spoke to Ed Rocher, you know, all of a sudden Ed Rocher told me that all his inspiration at the beginning came from architecture. Then we then this conversation with him on architecture. And you know, at a certain moment, goes back to Vasari, goes sort of full circle to Vasari, the art and architecture field wasn't divided, you know, in a way. And so, anyway, that means so it isn't 700 artists. But of course, you know, not, not everybody in this project, you know, uh, in this project of recording, is a game changer. Some people, you know, are, are a portal to the future. Other people change, you know, are game changer. Other people play a very central role, maybe in a more local art history, which is also relevant, no? And then I think, I mean, that's what also Stats Tarkel told me. You know, Stats Tarkel told me that we should actually speak to people, you know, because if we, if we look at, at, at a specific project, you know, so many people contribute to such a project. So Stats Tarkel was saying, if you really want to have an oral history, you should not only talk to the architect, you should also talk to the engineer, you should talk to the client, all of that. Yes, Dorian. But you are right, time is the best editor. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. I have one question that I'd love for each of you to answer. What is the one question you weren't asked today that you'd like to answer? <laughs> yeah, I wasn't actually asked what is my unrealized project. I was only asked, you know, <laughs> what's that question. So I can try to answer that. So basically, um, there, I've got a whole you know, list of unrealized projects. With curating, 
it's almost like with architecture. You know, there are so many projects which uh, are too big to be realized, or you know, utopic, etc., etc. But I have one project which is particularly close to my heart. You know, because basically speaking to artists for so many years about their unrealized projects, um, you know, I have a whole archive of their unrealized projects. And it's you know, very well-known artists' projects um, which they somehow never could do. So for example, Louis Bourgeois wanted to realize a, uh, she wanted to realize a little amphitheater, no? Or Agnes Denes wanted to realize this amazing, utopic, you know, ecological project. Or Sildo Meireles wanted to do a project which was too small to be realized. He wanted to do a tiny sculpture and an entire museum should be empty and you just have these tiny little sculptures. Obviously no museum ever did it. So that project was too small to be realized. So I always wanted to do a big exhibition of all these unrealized artist projects because I think it would be very stimulating for the audience. I think it would be great for the artists to get their unrealized projects out into the world. And I think it would also help that some of these wonderful unrealized projects, you know, could be built. But unfortunately, it's almost like uh, a doom. Whenever we get close to realize this unrealized project exhibition, it remains unrealized. So that's kind of my dream. I didn't actually have a question that I wanted to be asked. Um, I would have answered any question that I was asked, though. So. Um, but Joseph has a question. But I had a question for you. Oh, yeah. One or two more questions for you. I wanted yeah. to ask you, what is your unrealized project? And I wanted to ask you also, if there is an art, yeah, your unrealized project, if there is an unrealized exhibition, or a dream, or something here at the museum. You know, because Kaspar Koenig was always saying, the museum of wishes, you know? <laughs> and I think it's interesting, with collections also, the very often museum have works they would love to have in a collection they cannot have, or there is an exhibition they would like to do. So I was wondering what are your wishes or your unrealized project? And then I wanted to ask you if there is an artist you wanted to interview for your book, whom you couldn't interview. So, uh I've always, <laughs> I've always been interested in doing an exhibition of bad art, um, an exhibition of bad art. Um, and um, I think it's a totally unrealizable project because, of course, you know, for the most part, artists probably wouldn't want their art in the exhibition of bad art. But, um, but, but I do think it would be kind of amazing so, um, to do. And, um, there is not anyone that um, I wanted to interview that wasn't in the book, but I'll answer the question slightly differently, where in my career there have been three artists who said no to exhibitions with me, um, and then it, they've actually all resolved, <laughs> interestingly. So the first was Chris Ophelia, um, but then we were able to do a show here. The second was Gabriella Roscoe and then we were able to do a show here, and then the third was Rachel Harrison, and we f I actually just gave up on showing Rachel Harrison's work, and then uh, miraculously, um, we have her work downstairs in the Jay DeFeo and the Ripple of X show, like as soon as I just released the idea of, of caring, uh, so. But that's a wonderful answer, because I think that idea also, that sometimes, you know, we have these unrealized projects, and then it takes so many years that they can be you know, realized. I always had this dream, ever since I arrived in London, really, in, in 2006, um, I had this dream that, you know, to do something with Crystal. Because I never understood you know, why Crystal, you know, there was, of course, Paris, the Pont Neuf, there was the, the Reichstag, there was the, the Gates you know, in, in, in New York City, um, which happened when Mike Bloomberg was mayor. And uh, so from the very beginning, you know, when I joined the Southern, I thought Crystal in London, uh, you know, was missing. And then, of course, we discussed it with our chairman, you know, with Mike Bloomberg, and uh, I felt that, you know, after the gates, how amazing it would be if it could happen in London. And uh, then Jana Peel and I, uh, you know, spoke to the mayor, Sadiq Khan, the, uh, the mayor of London, uh, with Mayor Bloomberg, Mayor Sadiq Khan, Crystal, we had meetings. And all of a sudden, you know, the miracle happened, and uh, we now have until September, this 20-meter-high mastaba, which is uh, floating on the lake, you know, between our two galleries. And it is like an apparition. 
uh, and it's really, I hope you can all come and see it. Okay, it's really incredibly exciting to experience it. Um, is it possible to photograph it? Because it keeps changing during the day, and it's also like a painting, because it mirrors, you know, in, in the water. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it's amazing what's happening on the bridge. There are traffic jams on the bridge. People from all over the world come and see it and have conversations uh, on the bridge. It's also very interesting because it's also, you know, it ties in a little bit because we talked about surrealism. I talked about Lucita Hurtado and about Leonora Carrington, you know, these two great surrealists who were, uh, um, whose work, you know, Carrington until recently and Lucita Hurtado still continues. And, you know, there's almost a Magritte dimension uh, in this idea that all of a sudden, and then, you know, in the, in the evening light, it's a bit like what's happening uh, uh, with Walter de Maria's lightning fields. Uh, uh, we spoke with Sarah Harrison earlier, you know, tonight about the lightning fields, and Sarah is here about the magical thing, you know, when Sarah was saying that all of a sudden, you know, the lightning fields kind of, you know, in the, in the evening light turn golden for a moment, and that's what's happening with that crystal piece, you know. It, it all of a sudden, when in dusk or dawn, you know, it becomes golden. It's no longer red and white, and these golden light mirrors in the lake. Anyway, just to kind of echo what Heidi said, it sometimes takes, you know, a long time uh, to basically, uh, yeah, to basically realize something. And, then, you know, so we talk about success, but I think it's also interesting to talk about failure, and sometimes conversation can go wrong. So I had one really disastrous conversation, and it has actually to do with Joseph Grigley, who is here, so I thought it's very amusing to tell you the story, because a couple of years ago, I went to see Stanislav Lem, and some of you might have read his wonderful book, Solaris, which also became a movie by Tarkovsky, and he had also written the Futurological Congress. Stanislav Lem is the great Polish science fiction writer. He's one of my favorite writers. He was, you know, very senior, and we went to Krakow to see him. And uh, all went well, you know, and we did this interview about science. He said he wouldn't really like to talk about science fiction, more about science and, and art, so I asked him about this. And then, of course, I needed to ask him about the movies. And Joseph had sent me an email and I said, you really need to ask him what he thinks about Tarkovsky. What, you know, Tarkovsky thought about the film, what Lem thought about the film, you know, he made. And obviously, as you can imagine, when a great artist, you know, makes a great movie, the, 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 the author who wrote the text is not necessarily happy. Because, you know, he's not, Tarkovsky wasn't so close to Stanislav Lem's text. So Stanislav Lem got incredibly upset that I would ask him this question about Tarkovsky, and he said that his mother told him that one should never speak badly about dead people. And of course, Tarkovsky had passed away, but he needed to talk badly about Tarkovsky. He turned all red, and he said Tarkovsky had really misused his book to do his masterpiece, and that he was so upset now that he needed to leave his house. So that was clearly, you know, my failed interview, and I was wondering if you had a fiasco with an interview. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, I honestly probably shouldn't tell the story, but um, we, uh, we have a TV show on, on the local station. It's called Art Matters, and, um, and we started it right when I got here, and um, the very first interview I did, um, and it really was more of an interview than a conversation, was with Simon Evans, um, who's an artist that I really, you know, admire and have shown, you know, a lot of times. And it was a tough conversation. And, you know, some of the toughest conversations are when you get one-word answers back. Um, but then the next person that came on, like, immediately last for, was Richard Tuttle. Um, and I thought it was amazing. You know, I mean, I was just like hanging on every word. I was, you know, just waiting for the next thing he was going to say, you know, completely, you know, starstruck. Um, and then when it was done and Richard left, you know, the head of the local TV station here said, wow, that was really, uh, you know, grassroots TV, like New York, 1960s at 4 a.m. And I was like, right. 
Isn't that awesome? And then I was afraid they were never going to invite us back to do another show. But anyway, the conversation with Richard was great. But, you know, not everything is to everyone's taste. And the talk show, of course, leads us also, and that's one thing I forgot before, it leads us also to this idea that actually, you know, sometimes interviews and conversations are also, you know, the, the substance or the material for artists to do artwork. And I think it is fascinating that we have, and it is, cannot be a coincidence, it's almost like a telepathic thing, that we have two of the main protagonists of artists who actually make art out of interviews with us here tonight, Alex Israel and Joseph Grigley, you know? Because Joseph Grigley has been weaving uh, extraordinary installations, uh, infinite installation. We once installed his white chapel, which is, you know, a gigantic chapel of, you know, all conversations on, you know, on white paper uh, in, you know, at the Musée d'Art Moderne. Uh, and then, of course, Alex Israel has created this extraordinary talk show where basically, you know, the interview, the conversation becomes an artistic medium and Alex is just about to launch his second talk show. I think it's, it's incredibly fascinating and amazing that uh, Alex and Joseph are here tonight. I totally agree and I'll just end by telling you a story um, about the first time that I met Joseph. Uh, he was trying, I was trying to uh, share my name, so I wrote down, I'm Heidi. And then I remember a couple of years later seeing that uh, note that I had written in an artwork in an exhibition that he had done. And I was so flattered. Um, and he explained to me that most people don't use the, the first word, the I'm, to explain who they are. They just write their name. So it was very different. So um, we learned so much from artists. And we're so blessed to have this as part of what we do for a living. Um, and thank you all for being here with us and being part of the conversation.